Paul is the apostle of faith, and he is. And Peter is the apostle of hope. Then John is the apostle of love. For at the end of his gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was loved by God, and as a result, he had a passionate love for God. You remember, John was the only one of the twelve apostles who was spared a martyr's death. But it was not because the Roman emperor Domitian didn't try to kill him. The emperor tried to turn John into a French fry, had him boiled in oil. Miraculously, though, the Lord delivered him. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he banished him to a rocky island off the coast of Turkey, a place by the name of Patmos. And it was there that John received the revelation, which we're going to be studying in a couple of weeks. After Domitian's death, though, John was freed. And he ended his years pastoring the church at Ephesus. As it turned out, God had preserved John for an important job. A dangerous heresy, you see, was sweeping, really spreading throughout the ancient world and even into the church. And God knew it would take a man of John's stature to successfully squelch that heresy. The evil of Gnosticism had raised its ugly head in John Wright's his first letter to stop it dead in its tracks. First one begins John's defense of true Christianity. He says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Notice here, John calls Jesus the word, or as he puts it in the Greek, the logos of life. Remember, the Greeks were convinced by the order and symmetry that they observed in nature They were convinced that there had to be a reason. There had to be a purpose. There needed to be a cause behind the cosmos. There had to be a reason behind reality. Greek philosophers coined a term for this unknown force. They called it the word or the logos. John begins his letter by reporting that he has seen the logos of life. In fact, he's handled it. He's heard it. His hands have reached out and hugged it. What the Greeks thought was an unknown force, John knew as a close friend. The reason behind reality was not an it at all. It was a he, and his name was Jesus. John writes this letter so that we too can know Christ and so that we can experience the joy and love found hanging out in him. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, and here's why, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The reason John writes is also God's ultimate purpose for our lives, and that is that we might have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Once I was asked a multiple choice question. I'll ask you the same question tonight. What is most important? And here are your choices. Number one, to get to heaven. Number two, to serve God. Number three, to do God's will. And number four, to know God more. What's more important? What's tops on your list of priorities? Think about your choices carefully, though. You know, we all want to get to heaven, but let me ask you, when we get there, what will we do? And what are we supposed to be doing in between now and then? Serving God is certainly good, but you know God doesn't need our service, and serving alone can even burn you out. And of course, we all want to be in God's will, but once we're there, then what? You see, the correct answer is not A, B, or C. The correct answer is for to know God more. That's why you were created. That's why I was created, that we might have fellowship with Jesus Christ. I do want to go to heaven, don't misunderstand. And I love serving God. I get a charge out of it. And walking in His will is way cool. But God's purpose for me, His purpose for you, is that we might have fellowship with the Father and His Son. And it's intimacy with God. It's knowing God and walking with God that yields our deepest fulfillment and our highest joys. 
In fact, John says in verse 4, these things we write to you, why? That your joy may be full. In verse 5, John says, God is light. Now certainly, God is a person. John teaches that elsewhere. But he has characteristics, God does, similar to the properties of light. Light invigorates, light illuminates, light warms and sensitizes, and light, of course, drives out the darkness. And if we have fellowship with God, we will walk in the light, John says, as he is in the light. Here's how a Christian grows spiritually, by walking in the light. You know, plants grow by a process known as photosynthesis. They have cells. Their cells transform light into energy. And this is how a plant manufactures food and grows. The Christian, though, also grows by what we might call spiritual photosynthesis. Our spirit is designed, it's born again, to absorb the light of God. The presence of Jesus in my life is the catalyst by which I become more good and more godly and more loving and more kind and more pure, more Christ-like in essence. You see, it's not up to me, it's not up to you to grow ourselves. Our job is to simply stay in the light, walk in the light, he says. And you will fulfill the will and plans of God. In other words, you and I, we need to get a spiritual tan. Just keep yourself in the light. Just bask in His glory. Just stay within His glow and within His presence. The more time you spend with God, the more God rubs off on you. And that's how we become more Christ-like. Verse 8 tells us, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now here's what hinders the light of God from having its effect on our lives. In a word, dishonesty. When you don't retain, remain and retain a repentant spirit, you get calloused. You become self-righteous. You see, self-deception, saying that you have no sin, it acts like a forty-five sunblock. It shuts out the light. Hey, no matter how spiritually mature any of us become, as long as we live in a fallen world, as long as we inhabit sin-stained bodies, we will never reach perfection. Let no one say he has no sin. If he does, he deceives himself. It's that attitude of humility and repentance. That's what keeps us in the light and allows us to absorb the light of God and the love of God and become more Christ-like. And so, when you sin, don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Don't excuse it away. Rather, confess it. Verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Always remember, the only sin God won't forgive is an unconfessed sin. Whenever you sin, ask God to forgive you. Ask Him to cleanse you. He is faithful and just to do so. You know, all our sins, past, present, and even future sins are forgiven the moment we embrace Jesus. But we still need to confess our sins when we commit them. For it is the confession that keeps our hearts right. Forgiveness is assured, but it's confession that's necessary for us to maintain a repentant and a humble attitude. John writes to encourage us not to sin, but if we do, he tells us in chapter 2 verse 1, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Guys, we have an attorney before the bar in heaven. An attorney better than Perry Mason, better even than Matlock. His name is Jesus Christ Esquire. Jesus is our attorney. He's our advocate. He is representing us in the court of God. You know, on the one hand, on the one side of the court, there sits the prosecutor. And you know him well. He's come to you before trying to accuse you. His name is Satan. Revelation 12 verse 10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. The Greek word devil means slanderer. And Satan is the prosecutor out to condemn you, out to condemn me. And understand, we've helped Satan a lot, haven't we? We've given him mounds of incriminating evidence that he can use against us. Videotapes of our private sins. He has sound recordings of things we've said and evil thoughts that we've thunk. And just when he approaches the bar to present all of his evidence, guess what happens? Our attorney steps up and he declares all of that evidence inadmissible. 
For on the cross, Jesus paid its penalty. Jesus washed that sin away. And because of the work of Jesus, our advocate with the Father, our sin is totally forgiven and completely forgotten. Doesn't that thrill your heart? And Jesus, in addition to being our advocate, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, John says, but also for the whole world. This word translated propitiation means literally place of mercy. Its Hebrew equivalent is the word kippurath, which in the Old Testament was translated mercy seat. You remember the mercy seat was the gold lid that sat over the Ark of the Covenant. And it was on this gold lid that the priests sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Over the mercy seat hovered the presence of the holy God. Under the mercy seat sat the demands of the law. The two tablets were contained in the Ark. But between the two... On this blood-stained lid, God's mercy and His justice were reconciled by the blood of a sacrifice. The mercy seat was the one place on earth where men and women could obtain God's mercy. And you know, today, there is still a propitiation. There is still a place of mercy, and it's no longer a lid. It's a Lord. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our place of mercy. In Him, God's justice and mercy are reconciled. Jesus is the one place where all peoples, as John put it, the whole world can obtain God's mercy. If you've sinned and if you need mercy. I've sinned, I need mercy. If you're in the same boat, there's a place that we can go. For God is rich in mercy and we find that mercy in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 verse 3, John writes... Now by this we know that we know him. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin penned the immortal words, Nothing is certain but death and taxes. But you know, John would disagree. For a relationship with Jesus is also a certainty that we can count on. The word know, K-N-O-W, appears 39 times in 1 John. John writes, so that we can know that we know God. We need that assurance, and we can have that assurance. When the Christian scientist and statesman Michael Faraday was dying, a journalist came to his deathbed and asked him the question, Mr. Faraday, would you care to comment on your speculations on the afterlife? Faraday answered him boldly, Speculations? I know nothing of speculations. I am resting on certainties. I know my Redeemer lives, and because He lives, I will live also. Jesus wants you and He wants me to know that we know God. And He gives us a self-test kit, a way that you can know for sure that you're a Christian. You know, if you're a woman and you want to know if you're pregnant, you can buy one of these, I guess it's pretty reliable, one of these self-test kits. And the same is true if you want to know that you're a Christian. There is a test. A twofold test that you can put to your life. First, John says, do you keep God's commandments? John says in verse 4, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, Jesus is such a powerful person. He has such incredible and contagious persona. His presence captures our allegiance. You cannot walk with Him and walk close to Him without being changed. If you know Him, you'll want to obey Him. You'll want to follow Him. Yes, you'll fail. No one who who says he hasn't sinned. If you say you haven't sinned, you've deceived yourself. The truth is not in you. But if you know God, you'll want to follow Him. You'll want to obey Him. John says, do you keep His commandments? And then the second question you need to ask yourself, do you love your brother? Verses 9 and 10 tell us, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. God is love. And you can't know God and harbor prejudice and hatred and bigotry in your heart. How do you know that you know God? Hey, do you want to obey him? And do you have a love in your heart for your brother? Of course, it's one thing to know God. It's another thing to grow in God. You either know God or you don't. 
It's either or. But there are different stages or echelons of growing in Christ, of spiritual maturity. And in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, John lists three stages of spiritual growth. The little child, the young adult or the young man, and the fathers are the spiritual parents. You know, it's interesting, at any family reunion, you expect to see some older people there. Some younger, adolescent people, and then some middle-aged people. A healthy family represents people at all different stages. And the same is true in God's family. When we come to church and meet together for our weekly family reunion, we should always find people at all three stages. Some little children, some young adults, and some fathers or spiritual parents. First John mentions the little children or the new believers. They bask in the thrill of forgiveness. They know God as a faithful father who meets their needs. But as with all kids, though they're full of enthusiasm, they're also naive and they're vulnerable, and they need to grow up and develop some spiritual maturity, which leads us to the next stage of growth God wants us to attain, and that's to be young men or young women in Christ, spiritual adolescents. You see, they have a hunger for God's Word. You know, at the, in the beginning, when you're a little child, you have to, somebody else has to feed you. And so you see the little children coming to church, you know, and they're being fed by the pastor and they're growing in the Bible studies and so forth. But when you begin to reach this next stage of, of young adulthood, you learn to feed yourself. And that's great. You begin to feed on Scripture. You study the Scripture for yourself. You wake up in the morning with a hunger for God's Word. You go to bed at night wanting to close your day again in God's Word. You have that hunger. And armed with the Word, you're ready to do battle against the evil. And you understand that you have a power over Satan because of the Word of God that abides in you. Being a spiritual adolescence is a thrilling, adventurous stage in your spiritual life. But you know what? There's something about adolescence. At times they think they know it all. Have you noticed that? Teenagers like to express their independence. But you know, they go through a stage there where they they buck and they kick. And, and you see it at the church. They go through a stage. You know, when they're little children, they're, oh, my pastor's the best pastor in the world. My pastor's better than your pastor. No, my pastor's better than your pastor. And they're kind of like little kids out on the playground arguing over whose church is best and whose pastor's best. But then when they become adolescents, oh boy, I know more than that guy. You know, who does that guy think he is? And you go through that little bit of rebellion. But you know what happens? You grow out of that eventually. And you begin to realize, wait a minute. You know, maybe the people there, maybe they do know what they're doing. Maybe there is some wisdom in some of the decisions that are made. And, and there's a maturity that comes. Eventually you become a father yourself. That's the cure for adolescence. <laughs> when you become a parent. And John identifies the parents as those who've known Him who is from the beginning. You see, spiritual kids seek God for what they can get from Him. Adolescents seek God to empower them to win battles, but spiritual parents seek God for who He is. They want to know Him for who He is, and they also want to know Him for how He can help them help others. You see, parents come to church not to get, but to give. You know, a father, a father's a man who's chosen to live his life for other people. The best definition I've ever heard of a father is someone who now carries pictures where he once carried his money. That's because a father's decided to live his life for other people. And that's what happens when you reach this stage of spiritual maturity. You're no longer concerned with what the church can do for you. You want to get involved. You want to help the church. You want to be a blessing to others. Parents, oh, how we need spiritual parents in the church. Hey, in all healthy churches, though, you'll find all three levels of spiritual growth. The little children, that's good. But they need to grow and become young men. And then they need to grow and become spiritual parents. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world system that we live in is hostile toward God. Its values oppose the thoughts and values of God. 
John says, for all that is in the world. And here he lists the world system. Here's the sinister system that exists within the world today. The lust of the flesh. Here's how Satan comes to you. He says, oh, try this and you can feel great. The lust of the eyes. He says, oh, do this and you can look great. And the pride of life. Oh, listen to me. Try this and you can be great. And this is Satan's strategy toward us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Oh, you can feel great. Oh, you can look great. Oh, you can be great. But notice, none of this is of the Father, but it is of the world. Here is the threefold web of worldliness. You've heard of the World Wide Web? This is the real World Wide Web. Hey, put the physical above the spiritual. Put the external above. The outward things above the inward things. Put the temporal things above the eternal things. But the way you find true life and true happiness comes from just the opposite. Living with our spiritual desires above our physical. Living concerned more about the inner man than the outer man. Living, Learning to live for the things of eternity rather than the temporary things of today. We need to have a different outlook on life than the rest of the world. Real satisfaction doesn't come from titillating the flesh, but from a spiritual relationship with God. Real beauty is more than outward image. Inner character is what counts. And real purpose is found not in temporal pursuits, but in counting for eternity. John says in chapter 2, verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. After a term in prison, Charles Dutton became a successful Broadway actor. And when asked how he made the transition from prison, he explained, Unlike the other inmates, I never decorated my cell. You see, Charles Dutton believed that his prison cell was a temporary situation, and he refused to allow himself to get comfortable And this needs to be our attitude about living in this world. Why are you decorating your cell? This world is passing away. And I and you are just passing through. Don't get caught up in worldliness. Rather, seek the Lord and seek godliness. Now, in Revelation, John talks a lot about a coming world ruler. A man whom he calls the Antichrist. This is the man who leads the end-time revolt against God. But the coming of the Antichrist is preceded by a proliferation of false teachers, a lot of Antichrists and anti-gods. And tragically, John says that many of these false teachers began in the church. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. You know, so often a false teacher starts out in a sound, Bible-believing church and yet begins to bend and stray and deviate, at first just in small areas. But over time, those deviations become greater. You know, if you're shooting a bow and arrow at a target a 100 yards away, but you're a fraction off in your aim, you can end up missing that target by 10 yards. A fraction off, an inch off, in the beginning, at the point of aim, can cost you 10 yards when you finally get to the target. And the same is true spiritually. Just a little error in a foundational doctrine can cause enormous deviation later on. But according to verse 20, we have some protection. Protection against these deviations and falling into error. We're told we have an anointing from the Holy One. You see, the believer's safeguard against deception is the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Chapter 2, verse 27 tells us, The anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. John has great confidence in the Holy Spirit to help us discern truth from error and grow in the knowledge of God's Word. You know, it's interesting to me that God entrusted the interpretation of His truth not to a specific church, not to a given denomination, 
Not to a particular office or man, but to the Holy Spirit. Not to an institution controlled by people, but to a personal anointing available to all people. This is where God placed the protection against false doctrine. You see, over the centuries, every time orthodoxy has been threatened, Christianity has been saved, not by the faithfulness of one sect or one group or one particular office. It has been saved by a revival that was stirred up by the Holy Spirit to correct the doctrine and to bring truth back into focus every time. In other words, when the message is distorted, it is the author himself who comes through revival and restores the true interpretation and the true doctrinal orthodoxy. Good Bible teachers can be helpful, but human teachers can also be wrong. And therein lies the danger. And that's why God wants us to put our trust not in a human teacher, but in the Holy Spirit. You have an anointing. The Holy Spirit has been given to each of us to teach us and guide us and lead us. Chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. The word behold means check it out. He says, check out the incredible love that God has for us. That the holy God of the universe would adopt a rebellious, dirty, spiritually infected little street urchin like me. And now choose to call me his child. Can you imagine such love? Behold what manner of love this is. That the fathers called us his children. And verse 2 tells us, we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, today the world doesn't recognize or appreciate our status as God's kids, but one day, the glory that God's given us, it'll be evident to all. When Jesus appears in the clouds, you and I will be on cloud nine. Because we will suddenly share in His glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that when the rapture takes place, we'll be given new bodies that will radiate God's eternal glory. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. You know, skeptics often accuse the doctrine of the rapture, and they, and they sort of say that it's a form of escapism. They assume that if you believe in the rapture, you're just sitting around twiddling your thumbs and biding your time and just sort of waiting it out. But not so. John says that the rapture is a powerful motivation to godliness. Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, my belief that Jesus could return for me at any time is what keeps me on my toes. It's what keeps me vigilant. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I first ask myself, man, if Jesus were to return while I was doing this, when I was in this place, would I want him to find me here? Would I want him to find me doing this? Hey, if you think in those terms, you'll want to be sure you're pure. It's a powerful motivation for godliness, the rapture of the church. Verse 6 is important. (laughs) But as important as it is, it also can be a confusing verse. We're told, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now understand, John is not teaching sinless perfection. He he refuted that back in chapter 1, verse 8. He said, let no man deceive himself. And, And if he might say he has no sin, he deceives himself. So John's not teaching sinless perfection. That's not what he means. Actually, in the Greek language, the verb sins is in the present tense. And could be translated, whoever continues in sin. In other words, whoever abides in him does not continue in sin. Now you remember the actual Greek word for sin or translated sin is the word harmatia, which means to miss the mark. It was a term used when an archer missed his target. You see, man's problem, here's our problem. It's not that man occasionally misses God's glory. In other words, his his eye mists up at just the wrong moment and he gets distracted and his hand slips. No, that's not our problem. Our problem is more innate. Our aim is just plain bad. Our nature has become warped. Our aim is permanently off. The problem is internal. 
A sin nature keeps man off balance and makes it impossible for him to aim correctly in the first place. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again and receives a new nature, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus births a new center of gravity within us. He restores our bearings. He straightens out our aim. When Jesus births his nature in you, he suddenly gives you the ability to shoot straight, something you lacked before. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there won't be times when your eye will mist up and you'll get distracted and your hand might slip. It will happen, but the problem is no longer internal to your own spirit. The problem is now the flesh, the devil, the world around us. And you have to learn to overcome those influences. But the natural instinct of the believer is now to obey God and to love God. He has put his nature and his spirit in our hearts. As believers, we know there's times that we'll miss the mark. But it's no longer because we can't aim correctly. And what we do is we learn to block out the distractions and maintain our faith and focus. Suddenly we begin to hit the target more consistently. It's been said the believer isn't sinless, but he does sin less and less and less. You see, before I came to Christ, I occasionally slipped up and did something good. But the general flow of my life was towards sin and selfishness. Today, now that I'm in Christ, yeah, I slip up in sin, but now my baseline, my natural desire, is to love God, to love my brother. You see, verses 7 and 8 teach us, like father, like son. As the saying goes, the nut never falls far from the tree. Kids act like their father often. And since God is righteous, his kids also will make a habit of doing right. Whereas the devil is the father of the person who continually sins. But Jesus has come into the world, we're told, to destroy the works of the devil. Aren't you glad? Well, I certainly am. John 10, verse 10 tells us, The thief comes not, it does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. In other words, Satan lives to rip off and kill and destroy. But Jesus provides 24-hour-a-day security. He's our bodyguard. He would even take a bullet for you or a nail. And Jesus builds and betters our lives. He promises life and life more abundantly. Jesus has come to counter and thwart and oppose the works of the devil. Guys, the words that roll from Satan's lips most often are rats foiled again. Verse 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin, or literally, sin continually, because he has been born of God. I love the Phillips translation of chapter 3, verse 9. The man who is really God's son does not practice sin, for God's nature is in him for good, and such a heredity is incapable of sin. If you're born of God, you inherit his nature. Innate within you is the willingness to live for God and love his family, And these desires will be seen in your conduct. Guys, every Christian has a birthmark. It's called love. Verse 14 tells us, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We've been called to love. And we've been warned that we won't necessarily be loved in return. Verse 13 tells us, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. After seven years in Christian school, when my daughter started public school, she was a little apprehensive. And the night before her first day in public school, I sat her down and I told her, I said, Nat, I'll make you two promises. First, you will be persecuted for being a Christian. I hope not often. I hope never by your teacher. But at some point, I know what will happen. But I also promise you a second thing, and that is that when it happens, Jesus will give you strength. He'll empower you. He'll get you through it. 
And John tells us the same. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Verse 16 tells us, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is what I call cross-think. Always think in light of the cross. If Jesus went to the cross for me, then what can I do for the people around me? It's interesting, and I think it's no coincidence that while John 3.16 tells us that God loves us, 1 John 3.16 says that since God loves us, we ought to love one another. And we should love not just in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. When we see a need, we should pray and ask the Lord how we should act. Love is not passive. Love doesn't bury its head in the sand or sit on its hands. Real love takes action. Do you love? Do you keep God's commandments? Christianity is pretty simple. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 23, it's even simplified further. If you're wondering which commandments you're supposed to keep, John tells you, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The Jewish law included 613 commandments, but Jesus reduced them to two. Believe on his name and love one another. How much simpler can you get? Religion is complicated, but following Jesus is simple. All that's necessary to walk with God is to trust in Jesus and love one another. Chapter 4 begins, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit's whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, every believer is given the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, but discerning the Spirit is at times very subjective. We all know this. You see, my spirit is like a satellite dish. It picks up all kinds of signals from all kinds of sources. God speaks to me. The devil plants thoughts in my head. My emotions run rampant sometimes and influence me. My own conscience and subconscious are active. Even a late night pizza can produce disturbing impressions. This is why John cautions us. Test the spirits, whether they are of God. And in these next few verses, John gives us some spiritual ID checks, some filters that we can use to test the voice of the spirit. Verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's pretty simple. To peel off the facade of any impression, discover how it treats Jesus. If it does not affirm and honor and exalt and bow to who Jesus is, it's not of God. A single young lady walks in and she says, Well, you know, I feel that God wants me to sleep with my boyfriend. After all, we're in love. It just seems right to me. Hey, test the spirits. How does that stack up with Jesus? Would Jesus agree with that? Is that what Jesus taught? And of course, we all would say no. You test the spirits by asking WWJD. What would Jesus do? As we noted earlier, John was dealing with a deception known as Gnosticism. It was a heresy that denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. The Gnostics made wild claims that though Jesus appeared, he didn't really come in the flesh. He wasn't really a man. He was just a phantom or a ghost. And they concocted fanciful tales of Jesus walking on the beach without leaving any footprints. Others believe that the spirit of the Messiah rested on the man Jesus until just before he was crucified. And at that point, the divine spirit departed from the human Jesus. The Gnostics rejected the clear truth that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. And this is why John is so specific. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. That was a direct assault upon the Gnostics. Today, though, heresy seems to have flip-flopped the issues. The Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons and other cults tend to affirm Jesus' humanity, but they deny his deity. But John's point still applies, and here it is. 
If you're not right on about Jesus, you're all wrong about God. Never forget that. If you're not right on about Jesus, you're all wrong about God. Verse 4 tells us, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Hey, we face today a trifecta of evil. The world will beat you up. The devil will rip you off. The flesh will drag you down. But God makes you and I overcomers. Guys, the Christian life is not a sheltered life. We take some hits, but we overcome. We fight through and rise above. A child of God doesn't just undergo hardship. We overcome hardship. We as Christians are like Timex watches. We take a licking, but we keep on ticking. God sees to it. And how do we overcome? Listen to this. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The God who lives in you is greater than the God of this age, Satan. Jesus Christ is greater. Always remember, one plus God equals a majority. Never forget that. At times it appears as if the deck is stacked against you. But remember, (laughs) you hold the trump card. Hey, Jesus trumps the aces and the kings. Greater is he. Verses 7 and 8 tell us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now when John says God is love, he's not reducing God to a mere emotion or force. The Bible reveals that God is a person. And he is a person capable of exhibiting a wide range of emotions. God shows love and joy and patience and anger and jealousy and other emotions as well. Yet with God, the emotion that lies closest to the surface that prevails most often is love. That's what God John means when he says God is love. It's been said love does not define God, but God does define love. And according to verse 9, God has displayed or manifested His love for us. In how? In sending His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Verse 10 adds, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, so often you hear people boast about their great love for God. But you know, our love for God is zip, zilt, zero compared to His love for us. My love for God is a drop from an eyedropper. His love for me is an ocean. Here's a good quote. Love flows downward. A parent's love for his kid is always far more powerful than the love of the kid for his parent. Likewise, who among men ever loved God with a thousandth of the love with which He loves us? I love verse 12 of chapter 4. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. You know, God is a spirit. He's invisible to the physical eye. But the closest the world gets to seeing God is by observing His love in us. Verse 16 says, God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God loves to love. And this is why God always teams up with the person who loves. Verse 18 is a powerful verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Hey, when you're certain that God loves you, that he will protect you no matter what, that he cares for you, and that nothing can happen to you that he doesn't at very least allow Then and only then does fear begin to subside. You see, the antidote for fear is a confidence in God's love. And verse 19 says, We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. What an incredible verse. The source of my love for God is His love for me. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 drives this home. There Paul says that don't we know That the goodness of God is what leads you to repentance. You know, for years I was exposed to a kind of religion designed to scare you into repentance. Hell, fire, and damnation, buddy. 
I'd come home from church on Sunday and have to brush the ashes off my little suit. The wrath and the judgment of God may have temporarily kept my hands at bay, but it did very little to capture my heart and change my life. But when I discovered God's love for me, oh, it drew me. It caught me. It grabbed me. It took me into its web, and I have never been released. It made me love God in return. Whenever I sense my passion for God waning and growing cold, I always go back and recall His love for me. And it refuels my love for Him. The key to loving God is living in His love for you. Chapter 4, verse 20 reminds us, we can't say we love God and hate our brother. You can't say that. A true love for God spreads to the people around us. Real love is horizontal as well as vertical. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, literally, he is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. You know, the greatest kindness you can do for me these days is to be nice to my kids. (laughs) And this is how God feels. To love the God who loves us is to love his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Isn't that great? You know, it's funny. I can send my son out to wash and wax the car, vacuum the interior, armor all the upholstery. I'm taking his mom out for dinner. But by his reaction, you'd think I'd just ask that boy to go and walk on the moon. I can't do that, Dad. But let's say he has a date and his car's broken down and he wants to use my car. Hey, he'll do all that I ask him to do and more and he'll do it happily. And why? The difference is love. Love turns burdens into delights. When you do it out of love, the commandment becomes burden free. Verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Hey, the world is applying pressure on us from the outside. It's trying to conform us and shape us. He wants us to cave into sin. But God has planted the seed of His Spirit on our inside, in our hearts. And as we walk with Him and trust in Him, that seed inside of us grows and that inner resistance builds up. And that's what overcomes the world, the outward pressures. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Catch this. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's interesting. The word that's translated victory is the Greek word Nike, which before it became a name for a brand of tennis shoes, it was the name of the Greek goddess for victory. And if Nike were writing verse 4, the shoe manufacturers that is, they would put it in these words. This is the Nike that has overcome the world. Just do it. But we as believers need the very opposite attitude. It's not for us to just do it. Check out what John writes. This is the Nike that has overcome the world. What? Not just do it. Let Jesus do it. Our faith. It's not what we can do. It's what He can do in our faith in Him. The way to victory over this wicked world is not through our own energies and our own willpower and our own resolve, but it's by depending and relying and resting in the power of God. Chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, There are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Jesus was born a man. He was revealed as God's Son by the Spirit at His baptism. And He remained God in man on the cross. All three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, His baptism, His birth, and His death, all agree on the dual nature of Jesus. He is both God and man, fully divine and fully human, 100 proof God, 100 proof man. Again, this was a verse aimed directly by John at the Gnostic heretics. Verse 12 tells us, 
He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You find real life when you embrace, as he said in verse 1, the logos of life, Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15 provide us confidence in prayer. John writes, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Boy, what an incentive to pray and to pray according to God's will. Verses 16 and 17 speak of sins that lead to death. There are certain sins that people committed in the Bible that brought death upon them. Acts chapter 5, you remember. The hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira was one example. But you know, the Bible is full of many examples of sins that led to death. The sin that leads to death is not one specific sin. And not everyone who commits that sin ends up dead. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, they played the hypocrite. How many of us have played the hypocrite? Under different circumstances, a person may be spared, but there are certain acts at certain times, in certain situations, that prove to be such a blight on the body of Christ that God sees fit to arrange an early exit for the perpetrator. There are sins that lead to death. Verse 18 assures us that whoever is born of God, the wicked one does not touch. If you are born of God, Satan cannot lay a hand on you without God's permission. He can't touch you. We are one of the untouchables, aren't you glad? Satan can't lay a hand on you without God's permission. God places a hedge of protection around all of his saints. Chapter 5, verse 20 tells us, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Now, have you noticed throughout this book, John has listed reasons why Jesus came into the world? Let me give you four. Chapter 3, verse 5 told us, He was manifested to take away our sin. That's one reason Jesus came into the world, to take away our sins. Chapter 3, verse 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. There's a second reason Jesus came into the world, to destroy the works of the devil. Chapter 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here's another reason God came into the world, to give us life. And now here in chapter 5, verse 20, a fourth reason. John tells us that Jesus came to give us understanding into the nature of God. You know, the Bible says God is love. But then we see Jesus touching a leper, healing a blind man. We see love in action. The Bible tells us that God forgives, but then we see Jesus showing mercy on an adulteress, allowing her to walk away freely. Jesus shows us what God was like. We see God clearer through the example of Jesus Christ. It's like the Old Testament was the book, but Jesus was the movie. He gave us a clearer revelation into the nature of God, into an understanding of God. Jesus showed us what God was like. And with such a clear understanding, there's no reason why you shouldn't embrace God and worship God and love God. And this is why John closes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why would you want to worship anything other than the wonderful God that Jesus Christ has revealed to us. And there we have John's first letter. Hey, there's an awful lot in that book, wasn't there?